You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Some notes on not jumping to conclusions that incidents are cyber attacks. A false flag operation shows the difficulty of attribution. Not everything that purrs is a kitten because sometimes it's a bear. Notes from the ICS Security Conference in Atlanta, including some reflections on the criminal market's business cycle, the dangers of social engineering, and the importance of attending to the fundamentals. And the Vatican fixes a bug. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, October 21st, 2019. The CyberWire has some of our folks down in Atlanta this week for the 2019 ICS Security Conference, which opened this morning. Before we talk about some of today's sessions, however, it's worth discussing some news that broke over the weekend that's directly relevant to ICS security. We're all familiar with the difficulty surrounding attribution. It's the familiar fog of war and the related but less often discovered glare of war, the way in which having too much information can blind you to what's really going on. So here's some fog of war that blew in over the weekend. Often there's uncertainty with respect to whether an incident involves a cyber attack at all, and that was the case with an incident in Iran. A social media report out of Iran yesterday said that a refinery fire in that country was caused by a cyber attack. But these reports remain unconfirmed. And note that the Twitter thread's assertion that the incident is confirmed doesn't really count. Reuters, sourcing Iranian state media, said there was a fire in a canal carrying waste from the Adaban refinery, but that the fire was under control. In this respect, ICS security firm Dragos blogged caution in accepting reports of a cyber attack at face value. After all, while cyber attacks can and have caused physical damage, accidents do happen, and it's important not to jump to conclusions. That holds true of attribution as well. Another example of the difficulty of attribution may be found in a joint report issued this morning by the UK's NCSC and the US NSA. The agencies find that the Russian government group Turla, also known as Venomous Bear, White Bear, Snake, Waterbug, and Uroboros, hijacked Iranian tools to mount an effective false flag operation in which Turla effectively posed as APT-34, or Helix Kitten. The espionage operation not only used APT-34 backdoors, but also prospected known APT-34 victims. According to Reuters, the NCSC says it's not aware of any official attributions influenced by the misdirection, but officials point out that the discovery should serve as a caution against hasty attribution. Compare a similar false flag during the last Winter Olympics held in South Korea when Russian services impersonated North Korean operators. Wired is running a long series on that incident. That's worth a look. 
We note that the joint warning seems consistent with the recently announced determination of NSA's Cybersecurity Directorate to engage the public more directly. To return to the Atlanta ICS Security Conference, we heard some interesting presentations during the first morning. If there's one overarching lesson the speakers agree on, it's the importance of paying attention to the fundamentals. Bruce Billadeau of Rockwell Automation subsidiary Maverick Technologies presented an overview of the darknet and what those concerned with ICS security should know about it. The basic problem from an ICS perspective is the way in which sensitive information and hacking tools can be propagated across the black markets that establish themselves in the darknet. He offered a range of lurid true stories designed to make plant managers flesh creep, the ease with which people trade company information anonymously, the hacking services freely available, and the price lists that make such services accessible to many who wish companies ill. One of his more interesting observations noted last week's recent arrests of some 300 individuals who were engaged in child abuse in the course of running illicit content services online. That, Billado pointed out, is what law enforcement is interested in stopping, and quite properly so. Your concerns, he said, addressing an ICS audience, don't have that kind of high priority. And he also noted the fracturing of contraband black markets with the Silk Road takedown. That's part of the normal black market business cycle, consolidation followed by an official crackdown, followed by the proliferation of small operators, followed by another phase of consolidation that continues until the next official crackdown. We're currently in a fragmented phase, Billado observed. Earlier in the morning, Mark Kerrigan, COO of PAS Global, talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly of ICS security. The good lay in signs of increased cooperation between OT and IT, with OT beginning to catch up to IT, particularly with respect to access management. He also saw industry focused on the right things, visibility, audits, and security awareness programs. And above all, companies now understand that OT security deserves investment. The bad is that attacks on OT are no longer just collateral damage. Threat actors, especially those run by nation-states, are now researching OT systems and developing attacks designed specifically for those systems. And then there's the ugly, chiefly the confusing OT security market and the tendency companies have to fixate on shiny objects, the latest buzzwords and trends. We also find, Kerrigan observed, that solution results seem to fall short of expectations, and too much information overwhelms understanding. Too much focus on detection is also ugly. Basic protection and recovery mechanisms can have massive risk reduction. Turning to the threat of social engineering, a presentation by Chad Lloyd, security architect at Schneider Electric, pointed out that compromising a system very often starts with compromising a human being. Social engineering enables the attacker to leapfrog not only cyber defense in depth, but even expensive physical security measures. He agreed with Kerrigan, attention to the basics matters. And in defense against social engineering in particular, those basics include security awareness training for employees. We'll have notes and updates throughout the duration of the conference. And finally, we're all familiar with the Internet of Things and the Industrial Internet of Things, there's also, inevitably, an Internet of Sacramentals, that is, the things religious believers use in the course of their devotions. 
Last Wednesday, the Vatican introduced an e-rosary app that's designed to enhance the prayer life of those who use it. You signed up with an email, and a four-digit PIN was transmitted. Unfortunately, that PIN was easily intercepted, and once intercepted could give an attacker access to all the information the Android app requested. The researcher who found the vulnerability informed the Holy See, and the bug was fixed by Thursday. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute, also my co-host on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, it's great to have you back. It's good to be back, Dave. Uh, I had an article come by. This was from the MIT Technology Review, Mm -hmm. and it was about how easy you are to track down even when your data has been anonymized. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Article by Charlotte G. It's... What's going on here? Fairly trivial to re-identify people from an anonymized data set. Okay, well, let's start out with some definitions here. Okay. When we're talking about an anonymized data set, okay. First off, on? let's let's explain why we have these things of these things called anonymized data sets, particularly for uh, in in the field of healthcare. Okay, a lot of times we need these data sets in order to perform research, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But there's regulations, and you know there are HIPAA regulations, and there might be some internal IRB regulations that say if the if you're going to store this kind of information, you have to store it in an anonymized fashion, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Which means that all of the personal identifiable information has been stripped 
from the data set and replaced with tokens. Okay. Right? But there is some information that can't be stripped because it's important to the research, and those things happen to be demographic pointers, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, like your age. Whether your, I'm a man or a woman. Whether you're a man or a woman, your gender, yeah. whether you're uh, white, black, Hispanic, whatever, your race is usually a very important indicator because in, in, in there are certain health conditions which affect different races disproportionately right. than the other sure. races, so that's important. Uh, where you live, what zip code you're in. So those are all very valid reasons to have de-identified data sets. However, this study found if I know three things about you, that being your birth date, your gender, and your zip code, then I can identify somebody correctly 83% of the time in a data set. Hmm. And they even have a tool that has some data sets that tells you how well you can be identified. So I went into this tool and I entered my date of birth, my gender, my zip code, uh, and it came back with a 99% identifiability. So in other words, if somebody Hmm. looked me up in any of these data sets, then they would be 99% sure that they had me. Even though they didn't have, the data set did not have your name in it. They could could look at the health information that was associated with my record. Now, a couple of things. When I join any of these sites that demand to know my birthday, Mm -hmm. I always tell them the same thing. It's Mm -hmm. January 1st. That's not my birthday, mm-hmm. but that's what they get told. Okay. Because I don't want them to be able to identify me with, with other other data sets that might be out there where they actually do have my birthday. Hmm. And I'm actually now reconsidering whether or not it's important for my healthcare provider to know my actual birthday after reading this. Because when I enter January 1st and the other information, that identifiability instantly goes down to 63%, which is well below the average, hmm. and getting pretty close to 50%, which is... Uh, essentially, you're anonymous because it's a coin flip on whether or not you have the the, the actual person. Right. right. Okay. Now, there is a new technology out there, a newer technology called differential privacy, mm-hmm. which takes one of these anonymized data sets and adds noise to it. But the noise doesn't change any of the value of the data set. Hmm. All it does is add more anonymity to the point where if I know something about somebody those three points of data or maybe more points of data, then when I get a record out that may or may not be the person, I can't tell more than 50, 50%. You know, in other words, I'm guessing Mm -hmm. whether or not that is the actual person. Hmm. So I think that's the solution when you're looking at public health data and public health information. But when you're looking at data uh, that's information about an individual, it may not be useful, Hmm. right? Yeah, it's interesting in this article they were saying that uh, they're going to be using differential privacy for the U.S. Census database. Well, that's a good use of it, right? Because the U.S. Census database is a uh, a database that's supposed to have general demographic information about a population, Mm -hmm. right? So differential privacy is a great application for that. Hmm. All right. Well, it's interesting. Nice to know that there are uh, solutions at hand (laughs) to to make this better, that it's not not all hopeless. yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Dave. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. 
The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.